Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, I'm Libby, and I'll be reading you today's Cape Cod Times, dated Friday, February 9th, 2024. Today's weather outlook is pretty nice. We have intervals of clouds and sunshine with temperatures in the mid-40s. Tonight it will be partly cloudy and dip down into the 30s. Over the weekend, the highs will reach into the 50s with more sun and partly clouds, and it will dip down to 30 Sunday night and then get cooler again starting Monday. By special request from a few of our faithful listeners, we now present the lottery numbers. For Thursday's midday drawing of the numbers game, we have numbers 0, 1, 9, and 1. The Thursday evening drawing in the game had numbers 9, 8, 7, and 5. For Thursday's mass cash drawing, we have numbers 3, 4, 9, 18, and 22. For the Powerball drawing on Wednesday, the numbers were 12, 21, 62, 67, 69, and the extra ball of 17. And finally, for Tuesday's Mega Millions drawing, the numbers were 2, 10, 31, 44, 57, and the extra ball of 10. The lead story on page one of today's paper is headlined, The Path Forward. Years of Cape Cod Bike Trail Planning Show Gains and Gaps in Connections by Walker Armstrong of the Cape Cod Times. There's also a photo of a road going through the woods and a sign that says road closed and this caption. A road closed sign on Monday warns bicyclists at the end of the Cape Cod Rail Trail off Higgins Kroll Road in West Yarmouth. Paul Graves, senior project manager for the town of Barnstable Department of Public Works, said the rail trail project for a roughly four-mile section from Yarmouth West to Mary Dunn Road in Barnstable has been in development for years and construction bids will be going out in August. And now the article. Vision 88 is an initiative by the Cape Cod Commission to build a Cape-wide rail trail, converting sections of unused railroad and other trail space into an expansive network of bicycle and pedestrian paths. And while parts have been completed, like Shining Sea Bikeway in Falmouth, other sections remain unfinished. Those unfinished trails include the proposed Bourne Rail Trail, a 4.4-mile shared-use path in Sandwich, the Barnstable-Yarmouth section in the Mid-Cape area, and an Outer Cape portion from Wellfleet to Provincetown. Currently, the single vehicle is the predominant means of getting around, said Cape Cod Commission Deputy Director Stephen Tupper. Long-term, county planners are thinking about overall investments in the Cape's transportation network, Tupper said. We want to make investments in bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure, and we want to think about how all of those modes of transportation can connect together, he said. Project Costs for Proposed Outer Cape The proposed section expanding the Cape Cod Rail Trail to northern sections of Wellfleet, Truro, and ultimately Provincetown is the largest unfinished path in the Vision 88 project. Spanning nearly 20 miles from near LeCount Hollow Road in South Wellfleet, 
to its proposed terminus in Provincetown near Arch Street, the Outer Cape section of the rail trail comes with a set of unique challenges, Tupper said. A state design in 2021 to route the rail trail along an old railroad bed from LeCount Hollow Road north to Route 6 was paused. Community opposition to the design was vocal. On the Outer Cape, I think we have to be ambitious by necessity, Tupper said. We're really wanting to make sure we connect up with different options when thinking about what transit amenities exist today or could be developed, and then how these projects could work together to create more options on the Outer Cape. The current proposal sees the roughly 20-mile-long Spine Trail interconnecting with a network of smaller trails, some leading to the Cape Cod National Seashore and the Cape Cod Bay shoreline and others connecting into and out of the towns of Wellfleet, Truro, and Provincetown. In 2017, the project was estimated to cost around $28 million, according to the Cape Cod Commission. But Tupper said construction costs have skyrocketed since then, making an updated figure for the project and a timeline for completion uncertain. I'm hopeful in terms of the funding outlook in the next several years, but it'll certainly take many years to complete that overall vision on the Outer Cape, Tupper said. One portion of the trail with a closer start date is the Mid-Cape section linking Yarmouth to Barnstable. Paul Graves, Senior Project Manager for the Town of Barnstable Department of Public Works, said the project for a roughly four-mile section from Yarmouth to Mary Dunn Road in Barnstable has been in development for years, and construction bids will, going out in, will be going out in August this year. Part of the reason why it takes years to develop these projects is a large scope of work to plan ahead, get community input, design, and then go through the state's Department of Transportation process, Graves said. The Barnstable portion is broken down into two phases, Graves said, with the section going out to bid in August, phase three, operating ahead of the fourth phase that is set to link the terminus at Mary Dunn Road to Sandwich. Construction is estimated to cost around $4 million, Tupper said. It involves some really significant infrastructure pieces, including a bridge over Yarmouth Road, a very large structure, he said. Some good news is that while the towns put up some money, we were successful in getting grant funding from the design. The bulk of those dollars are coming from federal and state sources. The section in the Mid-Cape will feature a shared-use bicycle and pedestrian path much like the other proposed and implemented portions of the project. Winter curtails construction in Sandwich. A smaller section in Sandwich, which is proposed to link the Cape Cod Canal bikeway, will stretch from Route 130 to Chase Road. The town of Sandwich, in cooperation with the Sandwich Bikeway and Pedestrian Committee, have been working to build shared use paths, also known as bike paths, along Service Road for some time, said Sam Jensen, Sandwich Assistant Town Engineer. Jensen said the Sandwich Path has made tremendous progress so far, but winter has curtailed some of the construction. He said work will continue through this year and is expected to be completed by the end of the year. Other desired routes are drafted up for connecting Barnstable, Mashpee, and Falmouth as well as linking Mashpee and Sandwich, but Tupper said there is no timeline on those projects. Perhaps the most well-known proposal is the Bourne Rail Trail, which would connect the Shining Sea Bikeway in Falmouth to the Cape Cod Canal Bikeway in Bourne. 
Recently, the project has garnered controversy regarding the proposal to remove the Falmouth Secondary Rail Line in order to replace it with the bike path. The Falmouth Secondary Line, operated by the private railroad company Mass Coastal Railroad, is currently being used to haul freight of solid waste from the Upper Cape Transfer Station to an off-cape location once or twice a week. The proposal calls for building a roughly six-and-a-half-mile path and has had $20 million of federal funding made available through the Cape Cod Regional Transit Authority. Tupper said because the project spans the entire region, cooperation and coordination between towns, agencies, and various stakeholders is critical for the Vision 88 project to realize completion. At its core, the vision is one born out of a lot of community conversations that we and others have had throughout the years, Tupper said. Among the agencies involved in the project are the Massachusetts Department of Transportation and the Massachusetts Department of Conservation and Recreation. Tupper said the State Transportation Agency has taken the lead on the project on the Outer Cape, while state conservation and recreation staff members operate the rail trail currently in place linking Yarmouth to Wellfleet. Municipalities from Barnstable to Truro are stakeholders in the project as well. Tupper said the implementation of the region-wide shared-use path is more about bolstering the region's infrastructure and connectivity than simply catering to a hobby. I think a lot of this work with the bike path and multimodal space sometimes is seen in a kind of recreational focus, Tupper said. But really, at the heart of it, we're talking about transportation facilities. Coastal Storm on Cape next week by Eric Williams of the Cape Cod Times. Cape Cod weather watchers have plenty to keep an eye on in the coming days. Part of the forecast seems pretty delightful with near record high temperatures in the regional forecast for Saturday but looming on the horizon is the potential for a significant coastal storm early next week, according to the National Weather Service forecast discussion. The question will be where the storm will track, said Bryce Williams, meteorologist at the National Weather Service in the Boston Taunton office. We probably won't have a good handle on the forecast until about 72 hours out. Potential for an impactful storm system. At this point, there is potential for an impactful storm system early in the week. This may bring rain and or heavy snow with a period of strong winds. On top of this, astronomical tides are high, so we may have to contend with coastal flooding. Given both coasts have been hit hard already this winter, they're particularly more vulnerable. Williams said both coasts in the forecast discussion mean the south and east coasts of southern New England, and added that coastal flooding could be an issue even without a significant storm. He also suggested that folks keep an eye on the forecast as we get closer to the Monday night into Tuesday time frame. Here is the Hyannis forecast from the National Weather Service. Monday, a chance of rain after 3 p.m., partly sunny with a high near 41. Northeast wind around 9 miles per hour, becoming south in the afternoon and chance of precipitation is 30%. Monday night, a chance of rain, mostly cloudy with a low around 33. Southeast winds 11 to 16 miles per hour becoming east after midnight. Chance of precipitation is 50%. And on Tuesday, a chance of rain and snow, mostly cloudy with a high near 42. Breezy with a northeast wind 18 to 24 miles per hour becoming northwest in the afternoon. Winds could gust as high as 38 miles per hour. 
chance of precipitation is 50%. Massachusetts gas prices rose from last week by Osgi Terzioglu and Denise Coffey of the USA Today Network. State gas prices rose last week and reached an average of $3.11 per gallon of regular fuel on Monday, up from last week's price of $3.07 per gallon, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. The average fuel price in-state has fallen about $0.03 cents since last month. According to the EIA, gas prices across the state in the last year have been as low as $3.07 on January 29th and as high as $3.76 last August 7th. A year ago, the average gas price in Massachusetts was 8% higher at $3.37 per gallon. Gas stations along Main Street and Bourne stayed the same from last week, according to the crowdsourced data collector Gas Buddy. Bay Village, Cape Cod Gas, Sitco, and Super Petroleum offered gas at $2.93 per gallon for regular. Mobile on Head of the Bay Road had regular for $3.09 per gallon, but over the bridge, the price at Mobile on MacArthur Boulevard went up to $3.19. In Barnstable, the cheapest gas was again reserved for BJ's members with prices at $2.97 per gallon, an uptick of $0.02 from last week. Price for regular gas at Mobile on Iano Road was $3.15 per gallon. Other stations on Iano Road, Barnstable Road and West Main Street in Hyannis, ranged from 307 to 309 per gallon, a 10 cent drop from last week. Prices in Dennis ranged from 304 to 335 at three gas stations on the east-west Dennis Road. Prices in Orleans stayed the same for regular gas at Mobile and Speedway at 345 per gallon, but rose for Sunoco and Sitco. Prices for gas in Provincetown, a 65-mile ride from the mainland, were not listed at the time of publication. Last week, Cumberland Farms on Shank Painter Road offered regular gas for $3.59 per gallon. This gas station information and gas prices on Gas Buddy are primarily entered by drivers. The crowdsourced information for specific gas stations can range from minutes to days old. The average gas price in the U.S. last week was $3.14, making prices in the state about 0.9% lower than the nascent average. Ghost Gun with Seven Ammunition Rounds Sends Man to Prison by the Cape Cod Times Reporters. A Cape Cod man, already on supervised federal release on heroin-related charges, was sentenced Wednesday in federal court in Boston for possessing a loaded ghost gun, according to the Massachusetts U.S. Attorney's Office. Crime Frey, age 28 of Hyannis, was sentenced by U.S. District Court Judge Allison D. Burroughs to 30 months in prison and three years of supervised release. In October, Frey pleaded guilty to being a felon in possession of ammunition, according to a release from the office. Federal authorities say that on March 24th at 2.15 a.m., Frey's vehicle was stopped on Blue Hill Avenue in Boston by local law enforcement. While searching the vehicle, police found under Frey's seat a polymer 89mm gun that was not commercially manufactured, commonly referred to as a ghost gun, loaded with seven rounds of ammunition, the U.S. Attorney's Office said. Police also recovered a live, loose round of ammunition near the gun, as well as a spent shell casing in the trunk. Frey was immediately taken into custody. In January 2020, 
Frey pleaded guilty to charges of conspiracy to distribute and possession with intent to distribute 100 grams or more of heroin, according to a statement from then-U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts, Andrew Lelling. Frey and 10 co-defendants were arrested in May 2019 and arraigned in July of that year in connection with a drug trafficking organization that authorities alleged distributed large quantities of heroin through Hyannis, Mashpee, Centerville, Osterville, and Pawtucket, Rhode Island. Of the 11 people who were charged, nine were from Cape Cod and two from Pawtucket. Making the announcement on Wednesday were acting United States Attorney Joshua S. Levy, James M. Ferguson, Special Agent in Charge of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, and Boston Police Commissioner Michael Cox. Assistant U.S. Attorneys Christopher J. Pohl and Lord A. Graber of the Criminal Division prosecuted the case. Boat being decommissioned catches fire while docked by Matthew Ferreira and Faith Harrington of the Standard Times. Dateline Fairhaven. A boat belonging to the owners of Base Seafood Auction in New Bedford caught fire Thursday morning while docked off Water Street. Officials say the fire resulted from sparks that flew from a metal saw as the boat was being decommissioned. Fairhaven Fire Chief Todd Carrera said the fire on the boat named Carabasset was reported around 6.58 a.m. They tried to contain it with a fire extinguisher at first and then called 911, Correa said, so there was a slight delay with us being notified. Correa said the fire was sizable by the time crews arrived on scene. It took firefighters about an hour to extinguish the flames using a combination of water and environmentally safe foam, Correa said. As of about 10 a.m. Thursday, Correa said Mass Department of Environmental Protection U.S. Coast Guard, and a private cleanup company were on scene to ensure the environment was kept safe. On scene, Fairhaven Harbormaster Timothy Cox said global remediation services were in the process of pumping any remaining fluids from the boat. It's a good thing there was no fuel. The motor had been taken out, Cox said. According to Cox, the owner's intent was to have the decommissioned Carabasset converted into an artificial reef that would assist marine life. What they do is they take everything off a decommissioned boat, make sure there's no pollutants, and then take it out to sea and sink it, and it becomes a reef for the fish, he explained. A worker on scene confirmed the boat was owned by Base Seafood. Correa noted New Bedford and Mattapoisett firefighters provided mutual aid on scene while a Kushnet provided station coverage. A 2021 report in the Provincetown Banner when the vessel was grounded in Cape Cod waters states the Carabasset was previously named Cowboy and was part of a fleet that belonged to the Codfather, Carlos Rafael, until it was sold to Blue Harvest Fisheries in 2020. It was since purchased by C&P Trawlers in a bankruptcy auction on November 6, 2023, as part of a $12 million deal, according to reports. C&P Trawlers LLC was formed in part by Cassie Canastra, according to reports, who was director of operations for BASE. A staff member who answered the phone at BASE Thursday morning said no one would be available to confirm any information on the boat. The Standard Times could not locate contact information for C&P Trawlers, but a business listings website lists its address as 62 Hassey Street in New Bedford, the same address as BASE.
Barbie's Gift Will Pay for New Welcome Center by Rachel Devaney of the Cape Cod Times. Dateline Sandwich. Pamela and Peter Barbie's shovels glinted in the sun as they broke ground Wednesday for what will become the new Barbie Family Welcome Center at Heritage Museums and Gardens. About 50 people gathered to celebrate the Barbies, who donated $3.5 million to Heritage for the Welcome Center through the Edwin Barbie Charitable Trust. This was an opportunity to help be catalytic. This is a major institution on Cape Cod and will only get better, said Peter Barbie. We're honored to be a part of that. Funded by a $15 million capital campaign, the Welcome Center project calls for a 9,000-square-foot, three-building facility on Heritage's 100-acre property, according to a Heritage press release. What will the new visitor center include? The Welcome Center, designed by GWWO Architects of Baltimore, will replace the existing ticket booth, gift shop, and restrooms. The center will include a new ticketing facility, the Clarissa S. Nye Visitor Services Center, a new gift shop with outdoor plant sale area, new restrooms, and expanded outdoor seating area, staff offices, a gathering space in the entry courtyard, and a fountain terrace. A conference room will be available for rent by the public, according to the release. Construction will begin this month and is slated for completion in April 2025. According to President and Chief Executive Officer Ann Scott Putney, the donation will enable Heritage to build a modern, net-zero welcome center. We're profoundly grateful for this generous support, said Scott Putney. The center will welcome families for generations to come. Josiah Lilly IV, son of Heritage founder Josiah K. Lilly III, was also at the groundbreaking and joined the Barbies with a shovel, the same one used by his father to break ground at Heritage 69 years ago, Lilly said. Over time, he's watched Heritage expand, including the construction of the Round Barn, which was overseen by two Italian master stonemakers. To be able to see Heritage's continued evolution is heartwarming, he said. I know my father would be absolutely thrilled. It was his wish for Heritage to grow legs and walk on its own and continue to move forward, he said. He walked every foot of this property more than once and said, there's more opportunities here. Toward the end of the groundbreaking ceremony, State Senator Susan Moran, a Democrat from Falmouth, said the donation and future construction is an example of generational fortitude. I look forward to what's to come, said Moran. I'm on the edge of my seat, like all of you. The Barbies also donated $10 million to Cape Cod Hospital in 2021 through the Charitable Trust. Report. Mass Economy Noticeably Weaker Than National Economy by Michael P. Norton of the Statehouse News Service. The performance of the Massachusetts economy during the last quarter of 2023 was noticeably weaker than the national economy, according to a report released Wednesday morning. This weakness was broad-based and can be seen in employment, wage and salary income, and goods spending all of which were weaker in the state than in the nation in Q4, authors of Mass Benchmark's journal wrote. Real gross state product in Massachusetts increased at an annual rate of 1.2% in the fourth quarter of 2023, 
while U.S. GDP increased at a 3.3% annual rate during that stretch, according to the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis. The weakening is being felt on Beacon Hill, where revenues that drove spending increases are drying up. After another down month in January, tax receipts seven months into fiscal 2024 are down 1% compared to the same period of fiscal 2023. Analysts tied slower economic growth to some familiar topics, labor force limits, heightened sensitivity to higher interest rates, and housing supply constraints that are exacerbating affordability challenges and likely causing some people to leave the state. Wage and salary income in Massachusetts in the fourth quarter declined at an annual rate of 9.6% from the third quarter, while nationally wage and salary income grew at a 4.6% annual rate. The decline in Massachusetts was likely due to a much weaker than usual bonus season, said Alan Clayton Matthews, senior contributing editor at Mass Benchmarks, which is published by the University of Massachusetts Donahue Institute in cooperation with the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. Massachusetts is more sensitive to higher interest rates in technology and related services that rely on venture capital funding and business spending, according to the report, which included a warning about associated impacts on tax collections. A forecast prepared in December by Clayton Matthews, a Northeastern University economics professor emeritus, estimated that higher real interest rates would lower fiscal 2024 state tax revenues by about $500 million in the last eight months of the fiscal year and by $1.3 billion in fiscal 2025. Higher interest rates appear to be taking their toll on the Massachusetts economy arguably to a greater degree than nationally, at least for now, Wednesday's report said. Mass benchmarks also cited growing evidence that the labor market is weakening in Massachusetts and reported that first-time unemployment insurance payments in Massachusetts appeared to be rising and were 15% higher in the second half of 2023 than in the first on a seasonally adjusted basis. Mass Benchmarks analysts said that continued slow growth in the Massachusetts economy was likely in the first half of 2024, tying that expectation to a belief that the Federal Reserve is expected to begin to cut interest rates in the spring. With local shelter for Valentine's Day, put your ex's name on litter box for donation by Eric Glynn of the Cincinnati Inquirer, Dateline Cincinnati. If you're not feeling the love this Valentine's Day, you have many options to vent your feelings via the animal kingdom. Animal shelters and zoos across the country are willing to name litter boxes, outdoor posts, feral cats, and Madagascar hissing cockroaches after ex-lovers in exchange for small donations. A $5 donation to the Animal Friends Humane Society in Hamilton, Ohio, means the shelter will name a litter box or outdoor sign after your ex. The shelter is accepting donations through February 13th and plans to post a video showcasing the names on Valentine's Day on February 14th. The Humane Society houses lost, abandoned, and mistreated animals. If that isn't harsh enough, the Humane Society of Warren County in Front Royal, Virginia, will name a feral cat for your ex before neutering them. Donors can participate participate by sending an email to the Humane Society of Warren County with the name after donating. The organization said it was able to trap, 
neuter, and release 368 cats last year. The fundraiser has raised more than $3,000 through Facebook so far. The San Antonio Zoo in Texas holds an annual Cry Me a Cockroach fundraiser for Valentine's Day. Donors can symbolically name a cockroach, rat, or vegetable after an X, and the zoo will feed it to the animal. A $5 donation gets you a symbolic vegetable. It's $10 for a cockroach and $25 for a rodent. The zoo sends a digital Valentine's Day card to donors. The El Paso Zoo in Texas has a similar fundraiser called Quit Bugging Me, with the caveat that the animals can only eat so many cockroaches, but all the names the zoo receives will be used to decorate the animals' exhibits. We've reached the halfway point of our program, and regular listeners are aware that this stage of the broadcast, we move to the obituaries. Our first obituary today is for Jacqueline G. Erickson, Dateline, Harwich. Jacqueline G. Erickson passed away on February 5th at the age of 92. Beloved wife of Robert H. Erickson for 69 years. Jackie was predeceased by her husband, her parents, Grace and Arthur Remillard, her beloved Nana, her son, John, and her two siblings, Arthur and Joanne. She is survived by her children, Robert, five grandchildren, and three great-grandchildren and many nieces and nephews. Jackie graduated from the Auburn Trade School, where she met her future husband, Bob. Jackie worked for many years at Ryan's Bakery in Worcester with her best friend, Buzzy. She used these skills learned at the bakery to bake numerous wedding and birthday cakes for friends and family over the years. During their 69 years of marriage, Jackie and Bob enjoyed many trips to the Amish country in Lancaster, Pennsylvania with their family. Jackie and Bob's greatest joy was attending their children's many athletic events, soon to be followed by attending their grandchildren's many games. Later in life, they were blessed to experience travel to Alaska, Boca Raton, the Caribbean Islands, the Panama Canal, and France, to name a few. Jackie was a lifelong Red Sox fan who enjoyed many games at Fenway Park. In addition to her passion for baking, she was an avid reader, party planner, and housekeeper extraordinaire. Jackie had a quick wit, great sense of humor, compassion for others, which often took the form of thousands of baked goods being delivered, and made sure her home was open to all her children's friends as well. She also enjoyed many ongoing close relationships with numerous friends. Her greatest joy in life was her children. She was an amazing wife, mother, sister, grandmother, and great-grandmother who will be dearly missed. The family would like to thank the Cape Cod Alzheimer's Family Support Center in Brewster, Broadreach Hospice in Chatham, and the entire staff at Rosewood Manor in Harwich for their compassionate care and loving support for Jackie and her entire family. Calling hours with a brief service program will be held at Nickerson Funeral Home on Crowell Road in Chatham on Wednesday, February 14th from 10 to 11.30 a.m. There will be a celebratory luncheon to follow at Clancy's Restaurant at 12.30 on Upper County Road in Dennisport. For online condolences, please visit the website of Nickerson Funerals. If desired, donations may be made in memory of Jackie to the John A. Erickson Memorial Scholarship, Attention Monomoy Dollars for Scholars, P.O. Box 244 in North Chatham.
Lynn Marie Partington, Dateline Born. Lynn Marie Partington, beloved wife, mother, nanny, sister, and friend, passed away peacefully at home, surrounded by her family on February 5th after a brief illness. To know Lynn was to love her, and to love her was a true gift. Lynn grew up in Brockton with her late parents, Henry and Nancy Frawley, her siblings and her best friends, Jackie and Lynn. She stayed in Brockton until she met the love of her life, Gary, during a visit to see her sister, Lisa, in 1980. From there, Lynn and Gary built a life together, which started on Fruit Hill Avenue in Providence before their move to their farmhouse on Cape Cod, where they raised their two daughters, Samantha and Tess. Lynn and Gary shared a beautiful life filled with all her favorite things, including time spent in her yard and garden, at the beach, with her kids and grandkids, and cooking and dancing in her kitchen. Lynn's family shares a house at the beach in Bourne, where summer days were spent with her toes in the sand or out on the boat. Lynn's love for her family and friends was unparalleled, and she leaves behind countless people who were fortunate enough to know and love her dearly, including her husband, her children, and grandchildren and siblings, and many other relatives. Lynn's family will be holding a celebration of life in the coming months. They ask for all who knew and loved Lynn to plant a flower in her memory this spring. John E. Tuttle, Sr., Dateline Mashpee. John E. Tuttle Sr., age 96, of Mashpee, passed away peacefully on February 6th. Services at Christ the King on Jobs Fishing Road in Mashpee will be from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m., followed by a funeral mass at 11. Burial to follow at the Massachusetts National Cemetery in Bourne. For the online guestbook and full obituary, please visit the website of Chapman Funeral. Janine E. Shaw, Dateline, Pompton Plains. Our dear mother, Janine E. Shaw, sadly passed away on January 14th at the age of 88. She was a wonderful wife, mother, and grandmother who was always there with a smile or a joke whenever needed. She had countless friends and was loved by all. Born in Paris, France, Janine trained to become a nurse in London, where she met her husband, William, who was serving in the United States Air Force. While in London, they married and had a son, Mark. Upon returning to the U.S., they had a daughter, Carol. Our mother lived in a variety of places all over the world, including Vietnam, Algeria, and Tunisia but she spent the most time in Yorktown Heights, New York, Wellfleet, and Venice, Florida. Janine was predeceased by her husband, William, and is survived by her daughter, Carol, son, Mark, daughter-in-law, Janet, and her grandson, Lucas. Today's Ask Carolyn column is headlined, Local Bartender Has Brazen Crush on Woman's Spouse. Hi, Carolyn. My husband and I have been married for a long time and have a close circle of friends that we see weekly at our local watering hole. We've gone for years and are friendly with many of the longtime bartenders, as well as the owner. One bartender apparently has a thing for my husband, and she's letting everyone know. About a year ago, she DM'd one of our friends that she has loved him for a year, and he loves her. She said she doesn't want to be a homewrecker, but my husband is obviously unhappy, in a toxic relationship with me. She asked for their support and to let my husband choose to love her. 
She confronted my husband while I was there and told him he is perfect and she knows he's unhappy. This episode really made him anxious and uncomfortable. Since then, she asks our friends about him, worried that she hasn't seen him for a while, when it's mostly because we avoid the place while she works there. Two years on with her unrequited feelings, and she still talks about this with others every couple of months. I want my husband to say something to her, but he is not confrontational, gets easily flustered, and doesn't often stand up for himself. He worries we will poison the well and not be able to go back to this place if we say anything. I want to say something to her, but am deferring to his wish that I do not. To be clear, my husband is not into her. We have an excellent relationship, and he has no idea why she thinks this. I believe him and know he wouldn't stray. Can I say something? Should I? Should I tell her boss? Signed, Befuddled Barfly. Dear Barfly, there are three people here more accountable than you are. Number one is the bartender herself for having boundaries so dysfunctional they sound unhinged. Number two is your husband, who clearly is imperfect, since he could have put you all at ease with one significant but otherwise formulaic exercise of spine. I do not love you. I love my wife. Do not talk to me or contact my friends about this again. He can shake and sweat all he wants through the delivery, but delivering this message was and still is absolutely his responsibility. Number three is the owner, who will also benefit when <clears throat> your husband takes his proper stand. The owner may not actually know this yet, but two years, friendly place, regular customers, unhinged declarations of love, I doubt anyone around this watering hole is completely in the dark. Regardless, an owner is responsible, upon receipt of this information, for reining in or firing such an under-boundaried employee. When no one at the top of the accountability chain takes responsibility, then you're stuck with it. Husband first, since that's the connection you care about most. Please draw clear lines, for me, if not for you. The owner also needs to know. Do not budge. Every couple of months may seem brush offable, but look at its poisoning effect. Love, Love, Couples Who Own Cape Cod Restaurants Together by Gwen Friss of the Cape Cod Times. The small business locally owned shop scene has always been a staple of Cape Cod restaurants, from fine dining to summer treats. Dozens of couples run restaurants up and down the peninsula, working side by side at their businesses and at home. In honor of Valentine's Day, we reached out to a couple of those couples to, well, hear their love stories, from how they met to how they run a business with their beloved. Hear from Jen Villa and Blaine Tott, who own the West End in Hyannis, and Michael and Libby Martyr, co-owners of the Doghouse and One Stop Market and Deli, both in Dennisport. Jen Villa and Blaine Tote, co-owners of the West End in Hyannis. The West End, a 233-seat restaurant next to the Cape Cod Melody Tent in Hyannis, is a popular spot for fine dining and special events, including weddings and engagements. During COVID-19, the couple built an outside patio and a sunroom, used almost exclusively now for parties. How they met. At Willowbend Country Club in Mashpee, where he was food and beverages director, 
and she was coming in to organize Cape Cod's first Dancing with the Docks fundraiser. I was thinking, who is this coming into my house with all this stuff, Tote recalled of their first meeting. But one thing led to another. By 2018, they were a couple, and she had hired him from Willowbend to help run the West End. In 2020, at the start of the pandemic, they threw themselves an outside rehearsal dinner at their restaurant and married outside at a friend's garden. We always say at the West End, we love love, Villa said of the 100-plus-year-old restaurant that was the paddock for years. How they work together. We share the leadership role like a mom and dad in a family, Villa said, referring to their three dozen staffers. She works full-time at Love Live Local, the highest nonprofit she co-founded and spends most evenings making sure things go smoothly at the West End's dining rooms. Handling tension. We can't really afford to have disagreements, Tote said. Villa added, there's not a lot of time for conflict. We're very communicative and we talk things out. No reservation needed. In addition to eating a light bite with the staff before service starts, Villa and Tote will often retire to their favorite spot, Table 50, to share a meal with wine or a cocktail. Often the managers on duty will join them for a debrief of the day. It helps that we really like each other and spending time together, Villa said. Michael and Libby Martyr, co-owners of the Doghouse and One Stop Market and Deli, both in Dennisport. How they met. We met a long time ago, Libby said, stretching out the word long as she teases her husband. Michael was the kitchen manager at the James Beard House, and I was a pastry chef from Charleston, South Carolina, working with Chef Frank Lee, at slightly north of Broad. Michael added, there's a picture of us plating up dinner that night. I asked what kind of plate she wanted. She was curt and short, and I said, oh, I think I like you. They went out in New York City and talked all night that first date. His next job at Bon Appetit took him to many cities, and he sent her a bouquet from each new place. How they work together. He handles the kitchen, and she handles the dining room and counters at the doghouse and one-stop, diagonally across the street. We balance each other, Libby said. Michael adds, I always say, where she sees a unicorn, I see a rhinoceros. Raising a family. Married 26 years with two sons, now in their 20s, the couple's advice is to be patient, leave work at work, and steal any time you can for family. Libby recalled bringing the children to the Waquasset Resort to see Michael when he couldn't get home and for holiday meals. It would have been very frustrating, she said, if I didn't know the business and what went into it. A little bit of everything on your cracker with the perfect charcuterie by Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times. As a youngster, my dad sometimes let my siblings and I select a meal kit for our school lunches during the week. I usually went for the ham and cheese crackers and enjoyed the simple yet satisfying taste of combining meat, cheese, and carbs. As I grew older, my dad introduced me to the wonders of the charcuterie boards, and I realized they're essentially adult lunchables. Same concept, meat, cheese, and carbs, yet an entirely different execution. Rather than wet ham delectable meats such as prosciutto, jamon serrano, and chorizo filled the boards alongside soft, hard, and crumbly cheeses and a variety of carbs. Jams, spreads, and fruits also took up real estate, 
elevating the overall flavor palette. I was hooked, and apparently so was the rest of the world. While these boards may appear simple to execute, I can assure you it takes a lot of effort to get them looking sharp. Not every board has to be a work of art. Sometimes throwing whatever's in the fridge and pantry on a plate will do. But if you're looking for a nice gift to give, a host gift to bring, or even a fun activity for Valentine's Day, we asked Madison Mayer, owner of Cape Cod Charcuterie, for some tips. What's the secret to making the best board? Mayer started Cape Cod Charcuterie in 2020 while looking for a creative outlet during the pandemic. At first, creating the boards was a task she took on for her brother's wedding after COVID forced him to have an at-home celebration. A few months later, she decided to take a chance and make a charcuterie business. I'm a musical theater performer at heart and throughout my entire life. So when the pandemic hit and all of the theaters were closed for that dreary time period, I was itching to do something creative, Mayer said. I had no idea what I was going to find and it took me a while, but I ended up finding charcuterie as that creative replacement. Now, almost four years in, Mayer has certainly picked up the tools of the trade. The most important part of creating a good cheese board, she said, is one that gives everyone the perfect bite. Like that scene in Ratatouille, where Remy eats the strawberry and cheese and experiences flavorful bliss. I always say that you want a little bit of everything on one cracker that you can fit in your mouth, Mayer said. You experience all of the flavors at once playing together. That's, I think, what a cheese board is really all about. Celebrating Valentine's Day on Cape Cod. Forget chocolate for Valentine's Day. Charcuterie can be a fun and different tasty option. I have special heart-shaped boards and I do a bouquet of salami roses, she said. That's always a really big seller. The salami bouquets are $65 and a Valentine's Day board for two people is $100. When making a board, Mayer said, it's key to have a variety of options. A few different kinds of cheese, such as brie for a soft cheese or manchego for a hard cheese, cured meats, spreads, such as fig jam or local honey, fruits and veggies, a gherkin pickle, and crackers or bread are important not only for filling the board, but for appeasing the crowd you're serving. Texture and taste key to a successful charcuterie board. I always look at it as the elements of a cheese board, and the two biggest categories, for me especially, are texture and taste, Mayer said. The texture and taste elements, such as sweet and salty, and some citrus and sour, and then some crunchy versus some smooth. It can be very personal to you, she said. For layout and style, Mayer advised grouping items in threes because it's more visually appealing using a board that's the correct size for the number of items you have, and garnishing the board with herbs and flowers to fill blank spaces. If you only have a certain amount of materials, I like to do a small board and fill it more, she said. You often see when people make cheese boards, there's a lot of space in between their items, but I tend to really pack my cheese board, so as you're eating it, people, people often discover there's layers to it. With Valentine's Day just around the corner, maybe charcuterie board crafting is in your future. If you'd much rather have someone else do the hard work, you can order a charcuterie board ahead of time through some local restaurants or mayor. To order a Cape Cod charcuterie board, visit the website of Cape Cod Charcuterie.
The headline on the Best Bets column today says John Waters auctions off a night in jail for Provincetown Film Society by Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times. Spending a night in jail is something most people want to avoid, but this night in a cell truly is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Filmmaker, actor, author, and artist John Waters is offering an overnight stay inside the Provincetown Jail, including dinner, as part of the Provincetown Film Society's fourth annual winter auction. John Waters is a very good friend of the Provincetown Film Society, said Ann Hubble, executive director of the nonprofit arts organization. We like to say Sundance has Robert Redford, and we have John Waters. The Society began its winter auction in 2020 as a way to fundraise during the off-season. Donations and support flooded in, and the auction quickly became an annual event. The Jail Time Dinner marks the third unusual venue hosted by Waters, after one held at the sewer and another at the Provincetown Dump. Each time, it's been a very specific experience, Hubble said. He's very into it. During one night in July, four winners will be locked up with waters in the Provincetown Jail to enjoy a meal prepared by private chef Jake Hetnarski, who always creates a menu that follows the dinner's theme, said Hubble. Diners will get a chance to explore the corridors or stay in a cell until 6 a.m., parole. Everything's delicious, but it's very on-brand for whatever the event is, Hubble said. I'm curious to see what Hetnarski will do for this prison meal. A few other famous faces, such as Emmy Award winner Murray Bartlett, and local businesses are also auctioning off prizes in support of the society, including private dinners, a week-long stay in a dune shack, and an African safari trip. For more information and a full list of auction items, visit the website of biddingforgood.com. Bidding closes February 11th. Here are some other things to do on Cape Cod this week. String Quartet with a Twist, a performance by Jocosa Chamber Music. Join Jocosa Chamber Music for String Quartet with a Twist, a performance of the String Quartet No. 2 by Anton Arensky and the Cello Quintet by Franz Schubert, and a before-concert Valentine's Tea Room reception on February 10th at the South Harwich Meeting House on Chatham Road. The reception begins at 2 o'clock and the concert at 3. Doors open 30 minutes before the reception. Tickets are $25 for adults and $10 for students and can be purchased online at the South Harwich Meeting House website or at the door. String Quartet with a Twist will also be performed at 2 o'clock on February 11th at the First Congregational Church of Chatham United Church of Christ on Main Street. Tickets are $30 and can be purchased at the door. People 18 and under get in for free. Celebrate Galentines with Cape Cod Beer and Hyannis. There are two tines in February, Valentines and Galentines. If you're looking to show some love to your gals this coming up week, Cape Cod Beer has two events for you. On February 11th, the tap room will become a gym for a Galentine's Day pound and pour workout class. Get in your cardio for the day during the hour-long bring-your-own-mat class, then head straight to the bar for a post-workout reward, a complimentary drink included with your $20 registration fee. 
If a workout class doesn't exactly scream, I love you, woman, maybe a paint night does. On February 13th, gather for a Galentine's Day paint night. Tickets are $45 per person and include one drink. Attendees are invited to bring food because options will be limited at the event. Pound and Pour starts at 11 a.m. on February 11th, and Paint Night begins at 6 p.m. on February 13th. For more information or to purchase tickets for these events, visit the website of Cape Cod Beer. Lady of the Dunes Lecture with local author Christopher Setterlund in South Yarmouth. As part of the Historical Society of Old Yarmouth's Winter Lecture Series, local author Christopher Setterlund draws on insights from his crime novel, Searching for the Lady of the Dunes, and recounts the tragic events of the recently solved murder. The event begins at 2 p.m. on February 11th at the Cultural Center of Cape Cod on Old Main Street in South Yarmouth. Tickets are $10 for members, and $15 for non-members and can be purchased at the website hsoy.org. Chocolatey Goodness Comes to Osterville. Annual Chocolate Festival Returns by Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times. Enjoy a sweet Saturday in Osterville as the village's annual chocolate festival returns February 10th at the Osterville Village Library. It's something to break up the winter and get you into the Valentine spirit, said Cindy Cotton, executive director of the Osterville Village Library. This year's festival, dubbed Chapters of Chocolate, is the first put on by the library following the Osterville Business and Professional Association's decision to step down from organizing the event. It's a really tough time of year, and we want to do something to bring people to Osterville, Cotton said. We'll make everybody happy and smiling. Plus, I love chocolate. There's also a dog parade. Chocolate dessert competition begins at 1 p.m. The star event, the chocolate dessert competition, is slated for 1 o'clock. Dessert drop-off is from 10 to 11.45 a.m., and anyone from a home cook to a master baker, even a child, is eligible to enter. There's no limitation on the desserts as long as it's chocolate, Cotton said. We prefer things that are just done. They can't have a lava cake where they want to heat it up. It just needs something to be something that they can drop off on a disposable plate and go. Judging will begin at noon and three judges, Lisa Raphael of Delicious Desserts in Falmouth, wine and food consultant Michael Wust, and Cape Cod Times features editor Gwen Friss, will select the best desserts. The winners will be announced, prizes will be awarded, and samples will be passed around once judging is over. Samples are free and go quickly. Chocolate Festival has events all over Osterville. Alongside the dessert competition, events will take place throughout the day across the village. At participating shops, stop in for something sweet like Prosecco and Chocolate at Sarah Campbell from 9.30 to 5.30. Or try your hand at winning a prize, like an Osterville vodka swag bag from the Osterville Package Store. You can also make Valentine's Day cards at Pocketful of Posies, among a handful of other activities at other village locations. We always like to support the stores because it's a symbiotic thing, Cotton said. As a chocolate connoisseur herself, 
Cotton said she wanted this year's festival to not only be full of sweets, but full of entertainment for the village. It's up to the people to bring their great chocolate things and then just enjoy a winter's day in the village, she said. We have lots of space. People can mill around, the kids can play. We're not a quiet library. Kids don't get shushed here. Dog parade begins at 11 a.m. The library might be home to the cutest event of the day as they host the dog parade. With Dewey, short for Dewey Decimal System, Cotton's five-month-old puppy leading the way. It's organized chaos at its best, Cotton joked. It's great socialization for the dogs and the people. Chapters of Chocolate begins at 10 a.m. and ends at 2 on February 10th. The chocolate competition is free to enter and all events are free to attend. The Osterville Village Library is located at 43 Guayano Avenue. Want a pizza pie? What to expect at these top five Cape Cod pizza shops by Gwen Friss of the Cape Cod Times. Today is National Pizza Day, one of six days set aside in the U.S. to celebrate various kinds of pizza. There's even a National Pizza with the Works except Anchovies Day on November 12th. Our mission was to poll Cape Cod Times readers last week, asking them to choose their favorite pizzeria from the 19 we listed across the Cape. After our poll of the 19 pizzerias went online, several emails came in with more nominations. The Cape Cod Times loves to get that feedback. We solicit suggestions for our regular polls on our free Facebook page, Good Stuff at Cape Cod Restaurants. It's a place to talk about restaurants, get recommendations, connect with Cape Cod Times restaurant stories, tell us what polls you'd like to see, and just chat with our 3,900 members. Now, drumroll, please, as we introduce the five pizzerias that topped last week's poll. Taking first place with 800 or so readers voting overall was Crisp in Osterville. Next came Moto Pizza in East Falmouth and Sandwich. After that was Spiritus on Main Street in Provincetown, followed by Jack's Restaurant on Gifford Street in Falmouth, and finally Pizza Barbone on Main Street in Hyannis. And that's all I have time for today. This is your reader Libby saying thank you for listening.